If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Hey, Agent 006, it sounds like you've made it back to the safe house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm no longer, you know, working undercover. You know, you actually you can call me 00 Negro. <laughs> undercover brother. <laughs> Uh, yeah, undercover brother sounds a little better. I'm not sure. Someone might give me the the, the funky eye if I called you double, double o negro, negro. <laughs> <laughs> in public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be like looking to get knocked out. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm back, ready to roll, ready to talk about some more controversial issues from an economic and theological perspective. That um, issues that pertain to Canadians. Today we'll be looking at the controversial rally of students against Israel apartheid at York University. We'll be looking at, is Canada's support of Israel justified? Seven types of propaganda? And a biblical theology of Israel's existence in Palestine. So let's talk about York University. Social justice capital of Canada. Really? People say that? Uh, I've I've heard it, that, uh, yeah, that, that York University is kind of a... Yeah, remember when we were doing the episode on the the, the teacher strike or the? Uh, oh right, yeah. It wasn't actually the teachers, but it was the the um, I don't know t- whatever the the lecturers or whatever it was mm-hmm. on the uh, TA staff one. Anyways, yeah, when we were um, when we were doing that episode way back when, um, they, I mean, whenever they were a very activist based university, a lot of times uh, Yorks. Um, when they had their strikes, they always uh, seemed to ask for the the most, if you want to call it, progressive things. Uh, but yeah, I've heard that in general, though, I've heard York University is a very uh, social justice place to be. Okay, well, we're looking at the Students Against Israel Apartheid at York University. So that's the name of the group. And they had a, they had a protest against Israel's apartheid and... You know, it got a little, you know, a little lively, riled up, and you know, it, you know, caused, you know, the prime minister of the country to put out a statement on on what happened there. So the protest was on November twenty first, and so this is what Justin Trudeau said: On Wednesday night, violence and race racist chants broke out against an event organized by Jewish community at York University. What happened that night was shocking and absolutely unacceptable. Anti-Semitism has no place in Canada. We will always denounce and and all forms of hatred. And then and then we had our premier Doug Ford, uh, the premier of Ontario, say I am disappointed that York University allowed for a hate-filled protest to take place last night at Vyrie Hall. I stand with the Jewish students and the Jewish community. There is no place in Ontario for racism and hatred. And then he also uh, dropped another tweet that said, 
I was shocked by the vile hatred that was on display last night at York University. I have been clear that there is no place in Ontario for racism and hatred. My caucus and I stand with the students at York University who had to endure this. Endure this. So what we're looking at today is, uh, is Israel practicing apartheid? And I think that, you know, really listening to what those students who were protesting against Israel had to say versus just uh, dismissing them as racist. I'll give you guys a quick mission statement from the Students Against Israel Apartheid at York University. So it says, We believe Israel is an apartheid state that resembles South African apartheid. Palestinian citizens of Israel are denied from controlling and developing over 90% of land because they are Palestinian. Palestinians expelled in 1948 and 1967 are denied the right to return to their homes and lands, despite the fact that anyone of Jewish background from anywhere in the world has automatic right to become an Israeli citizen. In the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip, Palestinians live under separate and discriminatory military law. The Canadian government provides extensive political and economic support to Israel. Canadian corporations profit through investments and joint operations with Israel, Israeli companies. Canadian universities invest in corporations involved in Israeli war crimes, and they maintain ties with universities in Israel that are responsible for weapons, research, and land confiscations. And they basically conclude with this. We believe that justice will not be achieved without equal rights for everyone in the region, regardless of religion, ethnicity, or nationality. We understand Israeli apartheid has one element of a is one as one element of a system of global inequality. To this end, we stand in solidarity with all oppressed groups around the world, in particular the indigenous people of North America. We oppose all forms of racism, sexism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, albeism, and other forms of oppression. We are committed to... Ableism. Ableism. We are committed to secularism and secular democracy. Our demands are based upon a July 2005 call from all over... 170 Palestinian organizations in support of a global campaign of boycott, divestment, and sanctions (BDS). What are your What are your thoughts when you when you read their mission statement? Well, it sounds it sounds to me that you know they they have good intentions, um, but we know that you know good intentions doesn't necessarily lead to good outcomes so i would say the question is is israel practicing apartheid and when i mean apartheid the same as it was done in in south africa so if you're using you know apartheid as a specific reference to south africa and if we look at south africa um and you're looking at the two scenarios and you're trying to say okay what's similar what's different um i think a surface level analysis of like 
similarities and differences, you're going to say there's a lot more differences um, and, and almost no similarities potentially. Um, and, and maybe none for some people, you might think there are no similarities at all. So, um, uh, but in general, if you're using those kind of, oh, how similar or how different is it? I think apartheid is the wrong, um, terminology off the bat. Yeah. And for those um, who don't know, um, apartheid means to be apart or separate. Yeah. And, and, you know, without getting too deep into the concept, uh, or, or to the history of, of South Africa, um, the the biggest difference i would say is there wasn't really a dispute over land in south africa um so it wasn't like the white minority wanted the black majority to leave they just they they wanted to rule over them and and in essence apartheid was how they ruled over them and whereas in the Israel Palestinian conflict, to some extent, uh, the conflict is over who rules the land uh, or who owns the land. Um, and arguably, Israel's position is they would prefer if the Arabs or the Palestinians left the remaining land. Um, so for the listener, uh, and you have no idea right now what we're talking about with regards to land and, and different things changing, um, check the show notes page for for a link that I'll put in there that shows kind of the progression of how the land uh, was split between Palestine and Israel over the last, essentially pre-1946 and then all the way up to 2000. Uh, that might help kind of frame what we're, what I'm saying right now and what we're going to say throughout this conversation. Um, cause I know for me until I saw what the, how the land lines were kind of divided and continued to change, uh, some of the stuff I was listening to, especially in the podcast realm, uh, was harder to figure out what exactly they were talking about. But all that to say, come back to Darnell's question, um, because of the division of land component that alone makes, you know, apartheid vast in South Africa, vastly different, um, than, than what we're dealing with here. So, Darnell, for you, what do you think? Um, what's right What's or what's wrong, I guess, about the apartheid claim? Now that I think about it, you know, using the term apartheid is, you know, you know that, that's a serious word that, that, that raises a lot of emotions with people. Like, so just imagine yourself, you know, as a student at York and you're going to math class. And then, you know, this group is yelling out that, uh, Israel is practicing apartheid. Like you have no choice but to turn around and inquire and ask what's going on. Um, because, you know, apartheid was such a horrible thing and nobody wants to see that happen again. Um, and nobody wants to turn a blind eye to that. So it, it raises a lot of emotions. Um, and, and it's a bold claim uh, to say that they're practicing apartheid as South Africa was. But I I would say that no... Israel isn't practicing apartheid as South Africa practiced it. Uh, in that, what we saw in South Africa was wasn't necessarily um, the problem of apartheid, but the solution of apartheid. So, 
So what we see with the solution is that uh, Nelson Mandela and his political party, um, they were able to run. Um, they were able to run for presidency of, of the of the country. So as soon as they were able to have political representation and that self-determination, um, then apartheid was was brought to an end. Uh, and I say all that to say that the main idea isn't necessarily the problem of apartheid, but the solution of apartheid, which was political representation. And from my research, and I guess maybe we might go back and forth, but that, you know, Palestinians do have uh, political representation um, in, in government in Israel. And I was looking at uh, Kenneth Michaud, a member of the South African parliament, a black South African, and, and he was saying that Nelson Mandela was fighting for the right to vote um, and to choose leaders, uh, the right to move around the country freely. And what we see now in Israel is that one-fifth of its citizens are Muslim. Uh, so the difference being, um, you know, the blacks were a majority in South Africa. So when Nelson Mandela was able to run, he was able to have the support to become leader of the country. But, you know, it seems like the Muslims are outnumbered in, in Israel. Um, but even though they're outnumbered, they enjoy the same rights as uh, some Jewish citizens, as Jewish citizens, so they occupy key op positions in the nation's in the nation's courts, uh, in the press, and in government, and they also have their own parties. So we see that Arab citizens of, so we can see that um, Arab citizens in Israel, as of two two thousand nine, held twelve of one hundred and twenty seats in Israeli Parliament, called the Knesset. And then we see like actual people because part of it is you know we can always throw around he say she say but like looking at okay where well, are there actual people doing this so there's this guy named uh, salim jorban and he's an israeli arab and former judge of the supreme court of israel and then we also have george kara um is an israeli arab jurist who currently serves as a judge on the supreme court of israel so like when people are saying, you know, there's apartheid, I mean, that's such a, a bold statement. Uh, when I was looking at uh, Mr. Michaud's daughter, Olga Michaud, who's an attorney and also a politician, and she said that the BDS movement, which is the movement that is a, about boycotting Israel to force them to um, stop, a, stop practicing apartheid, the founder of the BDS movement, Omar Bagauti said, we oppose a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. Ending the occupation doesn't mean anything if it doesn't mean upending the Jewish state itself. And so what what the odd thing is, is that Omar Bagauti is a professor at the University of Tel Aviv in Israel. So he has a position of influence in Israel, as opposed to like we're looking at South Africa, where a black having a black professor wouldn't have been a thing um, during apartheid under, in in South Africa. So that's why I'm saying like there really isn't um, a connection there. What do you think? Um, I mean, I think I think 
The problem is the word apartheid, to be honest. Um, because it, it's a word that, I don't want to say it has baggage, but it carries... It does have baggage. Well, it does, and it does have baggage, but yeah. baggage is a horrible word. So mm-hmm. I, like, it, it carries a connotation towards a particular scenario. Right, it it's not it's it's not. I mean, it's not like the word. Let's use something else that's heavy, like heavy. Like in general, if I think of slavery, I would say maybe if you lived in the U.S., you would only think of your histor- history with the word slavery. But for me, like I think of slavery throughout time, and so there's there's a a, a wide. Of context that that refers to, whereas apartheid has a very limited context, and that's okay. The reason I say, well, but the, but this is why I think the word is a problem in this context because um, I think there are some um, underlying factors that need to be addressed, but. By calling it apartheid, if someone says, well, that's not, it's not apartheid, those underlying issues may be ignored. And that's why I think the word apartheid is the issue. Um, okay, okay. I mean, there's a couple different things that, that come into play. I mean, so, I mean, unless, uh, before I get into, let's say, some of those problematic things, is there anything, you know, else with regards to apartheid that, or or other people's commentary on that that you you want to no give the listener no, no. okay so um, I got an article from from Vox one of the things that that would I so I'll read the headline um, so Vox article says Israelis hugely controversial nation state law explained uh, and then the, the subtitle is supporters call Israel's new Jewish nation-state law, a defining moment. Critics say it's apartheid. Um, and and the, in the article, and again, I'll put in the show notes page, um, it, they basically said the law does three big things. One, it states that the right to exercise national self-determination in Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It establishes Hebrew as Israel's official language and downgrades Arabic, a language widely spoken by Arab Israelis, to a special status language. And third, it establishes Jewish settlement as a national value and mandates the state will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. So, I mean, those are, that's, one thing that again, you know, I think the subtitle kind of speaks to it perfectly, yeah. where it says the critics say it's apartheid. So, um, if we were to evaluate, if if I try to take apartheid and say, okay, if you want to say apartheid means different sets of rules for different people within the country, um. That's a. I think that's a really simple definition. Um, my first thought is: Are we going to say that maybe there's a whole bunch of Muslim countries practicing apartheid, or 
the communist Chinese mm-hmm. that are following apart. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, that's a good point. is that opening that's a, good point. a huge can of worms? Um, that's a good point, Joel. But again, that doesn't diminish that maybe there are some criti- criticisms towards Israel that mm-hmm. are valid. Mm-hmm. Because just because another country um, in the Middle East is worse or is also doing it doesn't make you know the thing that we want to critique Israel of you know not worth discussing. Um, so the other big thing that I've heard is, um, and and I'm not going to flush this out well, um, but there's a bit of conflating of issues, or 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 let's say, not steel-manning the arguments uh, for those that are dismissing apartheid. Um, Because from what I've learned a little bit, there's this comment that if you were to look at the West Bank and you look at the occupied areas of the West Bank, meaning the parts of the West Bank that are now Israel or Israel's, under Israel's occupa- occupation, and uh, sorry for the listeners. Uh, we'll have a map. Uh, yeah, I've got. I've got a good, I think I got a good link. Show, that, show that notes so you guys can uh, follow along. Maps. But yeah, go yeah. ahead, Joel. For those that want to dismiss apartheid, in my perspective, there seems to be a lack of steel manning, um, because the best example would be there is a a Jewish only highway uh, within the West Bank area, if I understand correctly. Um, they they might cl- there might be a rational argument whether I agree with it or not is not my point there might be a rational argument that it's they need this Jewish only highway for safety reasons and and whatnot whether that's true or not that does create a level of segregation that I would say uh, when someone was or yeah I would say that has so. It has some founding for those that want to claim that it's apartheid. I might disagree that calling it apartheid is the right, uh, you know, classification. But the underlying issue that they're bringing up um, is is something that hey, yeah, maybe we do need to be concerned about this. Maybe this is an area Israel deserves criticism for. Um, and so that's where uh, you know I think the the apartheid issue as a word has a problem uh, because it's it's. If anything, it seems like the actual substantive things that need to be discussed are being dismissed because we're focusing on, is this word right or wrong? Like the group was saying that Canadians or Canada supports Israel um, in trying to solve the problem from being pro-Israel. Is Canada wrong in getting involved in supporting Israel? I'm sympathetic to the fact that Israel is in need of an ally. Um, when it comes to the specifics of this conflict, meaning Israel and Palestine, I mean, I, I don't, you know, to some extent, I don't even know what the right answer is. I, I don't know what moving forward for the two of them looks like in a way that it's productive and resolves. Um, and so in that regard... You know, is should Canada support them? Well, you know, if it's a, you know, if Israel's invading the areas of Palestine and basically trying to overtake what's left, um, 
no, Canada probably shouldn't support that. But as a country as a whole, is it okay to, you know, or, or should we be saying, okay, Canada needs to pull out altogether? Well, I mean, I think you'd have to get to the point of if Canada and U.S. see a resolution that that Israel just is not willing to accept, but there is no alternative, well, then by not supporting them, we might actually get them to act in a way that says, okay, we can finally resolve this. So, I mean, for you, where do you stand on, let's say, the criticisms this group had towards Canada supporting them? Well, uh, I was uh, looking at a video on PragerU, and it had uh, it was featuring Stephen Harper, the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, and he was talking about why he's pro-Israel. And he was saying, like, why wouldn't I support a fellow democratic nation? where open elections, free speech, and religious tolerance are the everyday norm. Why wouldn't I support a country with a vibrant free press and independent judiciary? Why wouldn't I support a valuable trading partner and a wellspring of amazing technological innovation? And I thought to myself, well, politically, and I'm, and I don't, you know, my whole thing is like politically, you got to do what you got to do. So, I just want to make it very clear that we should never say about any nation that we always support whatever it does, whether or not we agree with it. So, you know, politics is a messy game and you got to do what you got to do to um, protect and support your people. Um, uh, So it is what it is. Um, And I back and I back Canada's support of Israel if it's going to. Uh, benefit us as a country for us as canadians we still have to be aware of the propaganda from both sides because you've been bringing up arguments that i haven't really considered um in regards to looking at the conflict and so propaganda plays uh, a huge role in the way we take in information i found an article on the seven types of propaganda it wasn't political, but it was more so geared towards uh, advertisements from our favorite restaurants. Propaganda is information that is used primarily to influence an audience and further an agenda, which may not be objective and may be presenting facts selectively to encourage a particular synthesis or perception or using loaded language to produce an emotional rather than a rational response to information that is presented. So let's look at some examples of the seven types of propaganda. So the first one is bandwagon propaganda, and that's pretty straightforward, uh, joining the crowd. The second one is card stacking propaganda, and it involves the deliberate omission of certain facts uh, to fool the target audience. The third one is uh, plain folks propaganda. So that's based on seeing ordinary people um, supporting a cause. So because it's ordinary people, you don't feel like you're being duped by a particular celebrity. The fourth one is testimonial propaganda. Testimonial propaganda is, is popular advertising technique that uses renowned or celebrity figures to endorse a product. 
three and four are kind of like the opposites of each other. Mm-hmm. And then five. Right. One is the common folk. Five is uh, glittering generalities propaganda. So glittering generalities is propaganda technique where propagandists use emotional appeal or and vague statements to influence the audience. Six, name calling propaganda. Um, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Derogatory language. And then the last one is transfer propaganda. And this type of propaganda uses a technique to project certain qualities. Uh, This can either be positive or negative of a person, ideology, or object to other things and people. This kind of propaganda uses many different symbols to achieve a favorable, favorable outcome. Yeah, I think the one that, that stood out to me, and again, we'll have this in the show notes page. Um, you can flush through it yourself. I think the one that stood up to me as the mo the what maybe needs a little more explanation, but also the most um, probably the most uh, frustratingly used, if that makes sense, is card stacking propaganda. Uh, and and I mean I think of it in a sense of I mean it's it's a selection selective use of facts. Right. So, I mean, if you think of it in the regards to we talk about straw manning and steel manning, you know, uh, essentially card stacking is is avoiding of steel manning. Um, So you're not trying to I mean, think of Pepsi's taste test, but then they're going to, you know, where they would get you try Pepsi and Coke. um, But then they're they're going to give you the stats. let's say on locations where Pepsi came out good, but it might turn out that the, the stats are 50, 50 across all their locations. So card stacking would be just selecting the locations where Pepsi did better. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but in general, you can do it with any of the relevant facts, you know, including the things that are good and excluding the facts that are bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think like to help us better understand and get into the truth and go past the propaganda, uh, we got to ask tough questions and do our research. So I wanted to look at this now from a, a historical perspective, but not just a historical perspective, but a biblical theology perspective. And so I, I say that because, you know, for the Christian, we don't history for us doesn't start, especially the history with Israel doesn't start in 1948 when it became um, when it became independent when it became its own independent state but we look at its origins in Genesis and with God so when I use the term biblical theology I'm basically talking about the storyline of redemptive history from Genesis until now Okay, so what I see here, and I'm looking at, I was reading a book called Politics According to the Bible, a comprehensive resource for understanding modern political issues in light of scripture by Wayne Grudem. And so he has a section on the history of Israel and how did it get to this place. And so he starts with the earliest recorded history of the people of the re region of Palestine is that it was occupied by various Canaanite nations. Genesis chapter 10, verse 15 to 19. But God promised that he would 
give this land to Abraham's descendants. And that's what we see in Genesis 15, verse 18 to 21. This promise found its initial fulfillment when the Jewish people under the leadership of Joshua entered the promised land and drove out the Canaanite people who had been living there, but who came under God's judgment. And so what we see in Joshua is that the succeeding chapters in Joshua show how the people of Israel began to conquer the Canaanites and take possession of the land. But that process was not completed in Joshua's lifetime. Joshua chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, the nation of Israel was established in the land. The remaining history of Israel in the Old Testament shows that its largest expansion of territory occurred under the kingship of David and Solomon. Then the kingdom was divided and gradually diminished under the Babylonians. Then the kingdom was divided and gradually diminished until the Babylonians finally conquered the last of the kingdom of Judah and carried the people off to Babylon in exile in 586 BC. And so now there's this chart that has the history or a timeline of God's dealings with Israel in Canaan, which is uh, today Palestine. What's interesting about this timeline is that it shows that there has never been a time in its entire history when an independent Palestinian nation existed in this land. If you want a snapshot of it, just email us at sixcentsreport at gmail.com. So now we, we move to the present day. And so on November 29, 1947, the United Nations passed General Assembly Resolution 181, which recommended the establishment of two separate nations in the land, the nation of Israel and an Arab nation, with, with specific boundary lines defined for each nation, a special power-sharing arrangement for the government of Jerusalem, and detailed arrangements for cooperation in economic, transportation, and agricultural mat matters. But the Arab residents of the land refused to accept this solution and refused to constitute themselves as a separate nation. Israel, however, declared its independence on May 14, 1948, in accordance with the policy of the British government that had been declared November 2, 1917. Okay, so what, what would you say, like, you know, obviously there's a taking into account the, the origins um, in the sense of Israel many, many thousands of years ago to, to then coming back to what we have today. Um, how should the Christian look at that? Um, is it, you know, restoration of what was ordained to them or, or is it something else? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So believe it or not, Christians are split on the issue on regards to Israel's right to um, the land. So it usually breaks down like this. And uh, Wayne Grudem says, Those evangelicals who hold to a dispensational system of biblical interpretation say that God's promise of the land of Israel to the descendants of Abraham was an eternal promise, and it will yet be fulfilled in even greater measure in a time yet to come. So the other side is the non-dispensational -disp view, which Grudem falls on. And he says, 
And he argues, they argue that the Jewish people at the time of the New Testament rejected Jesus as their Messiah and thereby fortified the promises to blessings from God that were to come as part of the new covenant in Christ. Non-dispensationalists place much more emphasis on the fact that many of the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were seen by the New Testament authors to be fulfilled in the church. There's a there's an article that I'll put in the show notes page um, that's pretty good. It's called The Top Ten Myths About the Israeli-Palestine Conflict. Um, and myth number eight for this article was God gave the land to the Jews, so the Arabs are the occupiers. Um, and, and I mean, in essence, what he's saying, this, this guy, uh, Jeremy Hammond, who's, uh, I would say he's critical of pro-Israel positions as a po- I, I don't know that I would call him pro-Palestine. Um, at, at least I, I thought he was very, uh, I listened to a couple podcasts. Again, I'll put those in the show notes page uh, with him. There's one, uh, it's about a two-hour episode uh, with on a podcast called Free Man Beyond the Wall. So I'll put in the show notes page. Um, I thought he was pretty well-mannered as he walked through a lot of the stuff that he took issue with um, throughout the, the Jewish history. But anyways, in this um, article, he's basically referencing scripture that is a response to the Christian Zionist um, and, and in essence saying that there's really you know when God was giving them a land he also said if you don't keep my commandments you're not going to keep the land um, and so from a Christian perspective I think Israel's loss of the land is in God's sovereignty and um, arguably not their land anymore. Okay, so then let me ask you, what's your two cents on the issue? Yeah, I mean, I think my two cents is is acknowledging my own kind of journey, let's say, with respect to what I think about Israel. As a, as a Christian, there's the overlap between uh, Zionism, which Zionism, um, for the listener, uh, let me just read a definition. It's a political movement that supports the maintenance and preservation of the state of Israel as a Jewish homeland, originally arising in the late 1800s with the goal of reestablishing a Jewish homeland in the region of Palestine. So I think you know, the card stacking propaganda is really relevant here because we as we being U.S. and Canada as allies of Israel are going to be getting essentially Israel propaganda. You know, they're our ally. Our government's probably got more information and they're going to want the population to support what they've already decided they're going to do. Um, And so they're going to get we're we're sorry we're going to get the propaganda that kind of almost reiterates that christian confirmation bias in essence um because i i think for most christians there's a default position to be at least favorable to israel um so for me uh over you know that's where i came from i came from that pro-israel position for the most part 
Um, and then, I don't know, I just remember hearing a podcast here or there where, you know, libertarians are just having a, a deeper conversation about what's going on. You know, there's facts like, you know, when, when Israel was established, um, the population split, so 1948 roughly, was, let's say, 55% Arabs and 45% Israel, or, uh, Jewish. Then the really interesting thing is that only 7% of the land was owned by Jews at the time. 85% was owned by Arabs, which leaves 8%, let's say, uninhabited. Um, but if you look at the maps, it's the original split was close to 50-50. Um, let's say maybe a little, you know, it's probably a little bit more than the Jewish. And this is the 1947 split. Um, and so, you know, there's just something from the libertarian perspective where they're more inclined to say, like, is this right? Should we do this? You know, is what are the property? How are the property rights being ignored here? Um, and so all that's to say that, you know, I think I've exposed myself to the libertarian side of things that, that brings up questions and, and wants to engage it a little bit more. Um, then there was also, you know, as I said, that Jeremy Hammond, a two hour thing, I think is going to blow your mind that in, in regards to the fact that we're, we're getting pro Israel propaganda, um, you know, there's questions around, I mean, again, I'll put it in the show notes page. There's an article that basically says, was the 1967 attack really preemptive? Um, and and my point is not to say that that, that even that article that dis, that's critical of the preemptive attack, that it's right. It's to say, we weren't exposed to this. You know, for me now, I'm in a place where, you know, let's say for 30 plus years, I was defaulting to pro-Israel with really no understanding. And now um, just looking at it going, you know, is is Israel, you know, what are they doing in terms of really moving forward? Um, because they're, you know, they're, there's a claim that only Israel's for the two-state solution. Um, the stuff I've been reading basically says, actually, no, Palestine's been pretty much pro two-state solution uh, and they've signed off on really uh, this two-state solution that was pro, uh, pushed or um, let's say ratified or whatever the right word is by the UN in 1967 um, and they continue to be on side with that um, but I think Israel wants a different two-state solution so for the most part us in North America we are blind to to the to the depth of what's going on for the most part we're we're fed the jewish or israeli propaganda uh, and we don't have you know we're not again we don't get reporting that shows us both sides and and recommends or or even uh, tells us why one argument is better than the other we're basically just given the narrative that we're supposed to believe so um I think for the listener who wants to have a judgment on this, you really need to dig. You really need to look into, um, you know, both sides. Uh, and and I would say there's probably a lot of stuff on the pro-Palestinian side that's kind of hot garbage too. So it's not as simple as you know finding one side or the other. Uh, personally, I think 
you know, for me, taking the Jeremy Hammond stuff in addition to, you know, let's say the propaganda, I start to see, okay, there's somewhere in the middle um, that, that, you know, we can find that we as a society could find a solution. Um, I just hope it's soon because, you know, I mean, way too many people are dying and there's way too much warfare over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? What's your two cents? Okay, so two things. This land conflict is not a religious issue, but a political one. But it's not as simple as oppressed versus oppressor. There's blood on everybody's hands. I think we need to be aware of the power of propaganda. Because we live in a time where we're inundated with so much information, we no longer know how to tell the difference between truth and falsehood. So, you know, some people think, you know, propaganda is a Christian rapper from the left coast with dreadlocks. Right. He's a pretty good rapper. <laughs> so, but, 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 you know, but the essence of propaganda thrives on the ignorance of its audience. It preys on people's good intentions, mm. right? Using buzzwords that pull on our heartstrings like racism, colonialism, genocide, holocaust, apartheid. Like all this to get us to make an emotional decision instead of an intellectual one. So don't be so quick to jump on the bandwagon, as we talked about. Um, do your research. Don't let your emotions guide your thinking. And if you're really concerned with revealing truth, you should work twice as hard to make sure that you actually have the truth. And lastly, the land promise that was given to the Israelites in the Old Testament was dependent on them keeping the covenant. They didn't, so they lost the land. Israel today are not covenant keepers. Zionism is a secular ideology. Ultimately, the land promise will be fulfilled in a global territory in the new heavens and new earth. So check out Ezekiel 47 verse 12 and 67 and then compare with Revelation chapter 22 verse 12. So be aware of end times views that say Christians must support Israel in their fight for land so Jesus can return. Um, When it comes to God's people, they're no longer known by an ethnic group, but by a multi-ethnic community called the church, which also includes Israelis and Palestinians. So for the listener, um, you know, let us know your two cents. If you think there's some part of the, the facts or the story that we're missing, um, you know, we're not above reproach. You know, we're not in the sense that, like, you know, we're willing to be told that, you know, we got it wrong. Right. And don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to sub- subscribe. Uh, it's very helpful because we do see the subscribers, but we see that our downloads are higher than our subscribers. Um, so we have a lot of... Uh, casual listeners um, but we hopefully those guys who are casual casual listeners will eventually be converted into six centers so yeah push the button because all the cool kids are doing it and remember six cents makes change does that make sense